Tonight, we're going to give you the opportunity towards the end of service to ask questions about Genesis so far. We will be in Genesis 33. We'll have gone through the whole thing since we started from chapter 1 back at end of July, early August. So if there's been a burning Genesis question that you've had that you've been thinking about as we've been going through, or you're starting to flip through now and said, yeah, I've always wondered about that one thing, why don't you just take note of it and hold it during the sermon time, and Kevin and I will answer a few of your Genesis questions at the end. Sound good? Spark is a place that likes to ask questions and wrestle and often be satisfied with the fact that the answer is bigger than all of us. I spoke to a group of Israelis last night who wanted to hear a little bit about um, what it is we do here at Spark and about my journey with all of that. And they asked, what's the difference between Spark Church and other churches? Like, why would somebody go to Spark? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of reasons. Coffee, community, fun, cute babies, you know, all those kinds of things. But in addition, I think that one of the things Kevin and I try to do, and leadership here, the, the board here is very committed to, is to provide a place where we can wrestle with our big questions about God and not have that wrestling kick us out of the community. So we are free to ask those questions and wrestle with them because we think God is big enough to handle them. And when we get to a question that we don't know, we dance because it means God's bigger than us. So join us in dancing towards the end of our service today. Okay, Genesis questions. Do you want to start a question? I guess one of the things that I wanted to share is we've taken a long time to go through this Genesis series. And you've heard us say before, that the way in which we read this text is really, really important. And I was just having lunch, actually, with my parents, and they were talking about some relatives who, you know, do the Magic 8-Ball Bible, and you point down, Danielle's talked about this before. And um, we were talking about biblical interpretation, and one of the things that was said to my parents was, well, we should just read the plain meaning of the text. And I think if you've been around Spark for a while, you recognize that even that phrase, the plain meaning of the text, has a multiple levels. So I told my dad, I said, next time somebody says we should just read the plain meaning of the text, ask them, why should meanings be boring? <laughs> because the word plain also means very boring. So even in the statement, it's complicated. So all that to say, the reason why we've gone through Genesis in this particular way is to tell the story. The grand narrative from the very beginning all the way up into this time. And we hope that not only in each teaching, and you can go back and grab those teachings, we hope that not only in each teaching that you've gotten a nugget or a lesson or something that can be helpful for your life, we hope that you start to see this grand movement that God has been doing since Genesis 1-1 and is going to continue to do. And then we also hope that you see yourself in that story that you start to see how your life today, how it's lived and how it's crafted, the decisions that you make are falling in line with that grand story. Um, so I suppose that's one of the things that I thought as we kind of come into this segment of Genesis. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? The, so the, the comment is that really that powerful parallel between the Jacob Esau story and the prodigal son story. And there's a book out by a scholar, Kenneth Bailey, 
who's phenomenal, and he's written this book entitled Jacob and the Prodigal. It's a great book, and it's really accessible. I mean, it's a little scholarly, but it's accessible. And he talks about how Jesus is rewriting Israel's story, um, Israel slash Jacob's story, and rewriting that into the life of um, his audience, and his whole audience would have picked up on that. That there's something prodigal about Israel needing to come home um, as, as Jesus is teaching that, as, as a possibility. Yeah. Right. I don't think it's significant, but they're often not all four women named, even though there are really four matriarchs. But it focuses primarily on Rachel and Leah, and then Bilhah and Zilpha as their, their handmaidens, their maidservants, you know. But, um, yeah, we should really remember their names. Yeah. One of the lessons that we have taught in the past is trying to pay attention to the major significance of minor characters. That oftentimes when we read our biblical stories, we see the big names like Moses and Abraham, but we forget the little people that are involved that are, are mentioned. One of my favorite people in the Bible is actually named Titius Justus. He has barely three words in the entire Bible, and it just says Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. It's in the book of Acts. And something was significant about him enough to get in the book, but not so significant that he's a Paul or a Peter. And I love that kind of idea because, and especially, especially for everything that we do, for every career path that you're on, for every endeavor that you have, there are big names in every industry. If you're going to go into the tech field, there are some big names in the industry. If you're going to go into ministry, there are some big names. And we often are drawn so much to those big names. And then we, as we are naturally human, compare ourselves or evaluate ourselves based upon the bigness of those names. And what I love about your question and this idea is there are little names in the Bible that have extreme significance, that are major to the story, that are just as important to the grand narrative, even though they may even not be named or they don't have a lot of, you know, real estate in the text, they're significant too. And that's something that I try to remember that Right. The goal is not to become a big name in the Bible in the journey that we're on. The goal is to be faithful to God with, you know, with whatever it is that he's given you. So I love your question, Kwame. I think it a and, helps and to highlight that. I think it's really important to remember that God is the central character of the story. So as you read your Bible, it's not about finding the hero. God is the hero. He's the central character of the story. He's the one at work. He's the one who's making it all go. So we read to find out how God is at work rather than how somebody got their name on a wall. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I can't, 
I can't speak specifically to the issue of how um, within Islam Ishmael or Is- Esau are used, but um, I can say that um, they are primary characters of focus within the Islamic text, and that the it's determined that um, Ishmael was actually the son of the promise, not Isaac. And so the, the story ends up grabbing hold of a different narrative, um, the, that, that push. We have a friend um, who has a lot more expertise in this area, and he's going to come to Spark at some point and do some, some talk on um, interfaith dialogue within the Islamic community as well. So maybe we can ask that question then. Uh, one of the things that I think is important to remember in that story, actually, is that Hagar says, he is the God who sees me. And I think that, again, is that moment of, like, seeing the face of God, but not just us beholding God, but God beholding us and being seen by him. That God cares about Hagar and Ishmael just as much as he cares about Sarah and Isaac. And the word Ishmael means God has heard. Yeah. So most scholars that I've read uh, trace the Arabic race through Ishmael. Yeah. Any other thoughts or wrestlings with uh, Genesis? You had another one? Daniel. Pattern of infertility yeah. in the patriarchal that's line. Great, that's a great question. It's a question. great question. And it's actually not only in the patriarchal line. Um, there are a lot of other stories in the Bible that talk about this. Um, Samson's parents have been struggling with infertility, and then um, the angel shows up, and she says, we've seen God, we're going to die. Um, and uh, it's really funny. Yeah, and then Hannah and... Um, and Elizabeth with uh, Zachariah and John the Baptist and others. What I love about it, particularly when you get to the Luke story with Elizabeth, um, Luke, the physician, is very careful to say they were both upright. Elizabeth and Zachariah both upright and righteous in the sight of God, but they just didn't have any children yet because they were old. Um, But it doesn't lay any blame. And I think throughout, one of the things that I love is throughout the biblical narrative, infertility is not, um, no one's, seems to be blamed for that in the text. There's a wrestling with God. Why is it happening? There's frustration. There's pain. There's please pray for me. There's all of that. But for the text to show that as part of our life is a really beautiful thing. Um, At least for me personally, I find it encouraging. And I think that God, um, I I love it because I, I think that that's part of all of our stories at one place or another, that there's there's times where we feel like God should be doing something and he's not doing it and we don't have control over it. It could be a family situation. It could be a job situation, whatever. Uh, but God is in all of those moments and he's still at work even when it doesn't feel like he is. Uh, in Jewish tradition, there are 613 commandments in the Bible, starting with the fir- first one, which is? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis. And I think there's something significant, at least that I see in picture, that the very first commandment, starts in the garden with be fruitful and multiply. And this is, in some ways, the capstone of what it means to be fully in line with God's created order, the way that God intended it to be. And infertility, therefore, is the symbol that, that the commandments of God, the goodness of God is, for some reason, again, not placing blame on people, unable to happen. And it is that, for me anyway, symbolic of then the, re- the fullness of the redemption that God wants to do um, using that kind of as the, the image or the picture. So when God does give children, it's fulfilling that very first commandment, which is the first start of the fulfillment of everything else that God intends and wants to do in this world. So I would add that as a possible, possible interpretation. 
Maybe Thanks what? for wrestling with us tonight. We want to um, close in prayer, but we're going to continue to uh, give time for questions at the end of sermons. Um, we've done that occasionally before. Um, and we really want you guys to, we like the interactive portion of church. Um, so wrestle and ask, and if a question pops up during a sermon, um, you know, note it, and we will continue or, to wrestle. Or you can email us too. Yes, please. Ask the pastors. Take the pastors out for coffee. We or like Chinese food. No, not Chinese. <laughs> Let's pray for our offering. Lord, we bless you, God, for the ways in which you are sustaining this community um, through the generosity of your people and your mighty hand at work. God, we are so humbled by all of your gifts, and we just pray, Lord, that everything we have, time, talent, treasure, all of it, Lord, would be turned back to you for your glory and for the building of your kingdom in our midst. More of your kingdom ruling here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys. Have a great week. God bless.